Good evening, and once again, welcome to Faith Reformed Baptist Church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you once again for the grace that we have in Christ. We ask that your word be open to us, and Holy Spirit, we pray that the truth will be applied to us. Help us to live your truth. Help us to be faithful to you. We ask, Lord, that you would drive out of us the sin that must be driven out for you to dwell in us. We ask that you would do these things for your glory, for the glory of Christ to be lifted up. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I would like to read some scripture to you. It's um, a little lengthy. I'm going to read about the cleansing of the temple from the Gospel of John, but also from Matthew and Mark and Luke. And uh, it's, it's not real long. It won't take me very long. But please pay attention to the reading of the word. John chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 13 through 22. I'll be reading from the ESV. <clears throat> the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus came up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has consumed, will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, we'll be reading Matthew uh, chapter 21. Now, in my, in my study, I, I feel that this first cleansing of the temple in John was in the first year of the Lord's ministry, and the cleansing that we'll read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke was done the week before he was crucified. And so what we have here is two cleansings of the temple. And so the next three accounts will be the second cleansing. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 16. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. 
And now reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 11. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And lastly, in Luke chapter 19, we read this in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for the people were hanging on his words. So, I will not be going over all these scriptures. It's a lot of scriptures to go over, but I did want you to see the background of where I'm coming from tonight. The doctrine I want you to take home with is this. It's simple. God's people should be people of prayer. And now you may be thinking, I'm not too sure how the scripture he's just read pertains to this. But remember the quotation that Christ gave them on each occasion. Not always the same, but very similar. That the temple is to be a house of prayer. So let me tell you a little bit about what brought me to this message. I usually don't do this, but this time I, I will. I've been studying through the book of the Apocalypse and when, I'm, when I came to chapter 11, chapter 11 is filled with, uh, with amazing things, as every chapter in the Apocalypse is. But the first two verses of chapter 11 has to do with John being told to measure the temple. And then in looking in Ezekiel and in looking in Chronicles and looking in the Old Testament concerning uh, any type of commands where the temple is uh, given measurements or when... Uh, Angels were provided measurements to tell about the temple, the size of it, and so on. All the different type of meanings of it. I, I read commentaries about it, and, and the, the people in the commentaries would simply say, this is a way of God saying that, that the temple and the people in it are protected. And uh, I'm not going to argue with that. I, I think that might be a, a very good interpretation of it. I'm not too sure how they came to the conclusion of it. And so I would prefer understanding it myself. And so when I got to studying this, it went further into the idea of understanding the presence of God. And so as I read some other books and read some other articles, it pointed me to the Garden of Eden where God was present with Adam. It led me into the presentation of the tabernacle, the temple, and so on, and eventually into the book of the Revelation where at the end we have God present with his people. And of course, all the wonderful predictions and prophecies of Christ. Christ being called Emmanuel. Christ or God with us. The presence of God. And so in that, I've, I didn't stumble across it, but many of them referred to Psalm 69. So I said to myself, I'm teaching Psalms on Sunday evenings. That would be a great Psalm to go to. And so as I was looking at Psalm 69, and of course, this is the Psalm that's quoted in John chapter 2. It said, that the zeal of your house has eaten me up. 
or because of the zeal that Christ would have for his temple. Or shall we say, let me rephrase it then, because for the for the love and cons, you, know, con, you know the consuming passion and zeal that Christ would have for the presence of God, for the presence of God among God's people, that uh, that he was then urged to purge the temple that he saw was being profaned. And so I went from Psalms to John chapter 2. And so you can see that there is kind of a, a stream of consciousness here going from pillar to post until finally I got to, got to the idea that I would want you to understand something. It would be good for us to see how important it is for us to be people of prayer because Christ has stated, I'm going to purge this temple because this is to be a house of prayer. This is where the saints of God lift their hearts up to, to the Lord. But we're going to see that this can be seen from different perspectives. From the perspective of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the perspective of us. And he is our intercessor. And so on. And so it appeared that as I studied this, I never thought about this before. But I'm sure that our brothers have mentioned it because... I can remember them teaching on this, that there has, in all probability, two cleansings of the temple. One in John, where the cleansing took place right after uh, Christ was at the wedding at Cana. And then he went to a Capernaum and then eventually found his way down to Jerusalem when they had the Passover. And this is when he very first, the first time, cleansed the temple. When he saw the money changers and he saw those that sold sacrificial animals to be given. And then later on, in the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, we see where Christ cleansed the temple the week before he was crucified. And I saw, as I read those, some differences. There's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. The way I put it, you compare and you contrast to see if there's anything there for us to learn. So let's go through the observations of these two cleansings. What happened during the cleansing of these temples? That is, of the temple. I mean, I'm talking about the events, these two different events. And so when Christ uh, came, into these, uh, came into the temple, it was obvious that he went into the physical temple. This is not a spiritualization of anything. He went into the temple built by Herod. Herod was a, uh, a noted builder. If you look into the history books that are secular, uh, he was more famous for, uh, for building things than anything else. And uh, infamous, of course, for murdering the children two years and under, but famous for the buildings that he built. And this particular building, the temple, was the pride of the Jewish people. It was very elaborate, very beautiful. But what had happened through the years is that corruptions took place and were rooted deeply in the temple itself. And uh, we'll look at two of these things that are mentioned in the text. Number one, a temple tax. And number two, the selling of sacrificial animals. Now you may say that that seems to be not that deep of a corruption, but it's more like this. If it was able to be corrupted, it was. And so there were opportunities for people to see the worship of God and to gain from God's people. And I, I, I have seen this in the ministry myself. It, I, I don't want to seem like I'm self-righteous or that I'm indignant of these things, but 
I get angry when I see a preacher or somebody taking advantage of God's people, especially God's people who are suffering or God's people that are seeking help, whether it be for physical problems or spiritual problems. The one that latches on to those poor sheep and squeezes wool off their back, mutton off their bones, the money out of their pocket because they're in pain. I, I, I get angry. <clears throat> I don't know how else to put it. But I can understand the way Christ felt when he came into the temple. Not that he's like me. I'm just hoping that I'm a little bit like him. I'm hoping that that's the case. So let's take a look at these two corruptions that were there. The first, let's take a look at the temple tax. And it sounds to me like, you mean the priests are just taxing the people? That doesn't sound right. Well, it's really based upon uh, a law given by Moses in Exodus. So we're going to read that. In Exodus chapter 30, we'll, we'll go to the, to the origins of this temple. And it's called a tax here. And it does, if you look at the words, it does look like a tax to me. Exodus chapter 13, uh, 30, we'll read 13 through 16. It reads this way. <clears throat> Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Uh, the shekel is 20 uh, giras. Uh, half a shekel of an offering to the Lord. Now, before I even go on, uh, the idea of a shekel here is really a weight. It's to give a certain weight of, of precious metal. Any, uh, everyone who is numbered in the census with 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall, give, shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall make atonement money for the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. And so to put it in, you know, for me to paraphrase it, the Lord is saying this. The people of, of Israel in the wilderness with the tabernacle, you're going to provide money so that the tabernacle can function. And you're going to give it for every single individual between the ages of 20 and up. And the weight is going to be a certain amount. Now this, I don't know how much that would, how, the, how much that would be, but uh, some of this research indicated that this is about 6.9 grams of silver. And I don't know how much money that's going to be to them. I really don't know. In our economy, it could be a half a car payment. I have no idea how much it is. But it seems to me that this was a reasonable amount because the instructions provided was that the rich shall give no more. You shall not value yourself more than anyone else. And the poor shall pay no less. You are all souls before the Lord. And you shall be given uh, this task to give this money for the function of your temple. And so... With the very idea that this is to be a certain amount so that everyone can pay and that everyone is seen equal in the eyes of the service that's to be rendered to them, then why should there be men in the temple now that says, that says this as a, as a business venture? We know many of our brothers come from all over the world and they may not have Jewish money because it says right here in our text that they'll be given a shekel which is a Jewish monetary currency. 
and the Roman money at the time, the one that, you know, the money that's given commonly to everyone, had a picture of Caesar stamped on it. And even words indicating that Caesar is king or lord or god. And therefore, I can see it reasonably rejected by the priesthood. So they had people there to exchange Roman money for Jewish money. Or, in this case, it may be even a specially minted coin as a half shekel used specifically for the tax in this temple. Which means you had to have that one coin. It's like a subway token. You want to get on the subway, you buy a token. Now, what would you think if you went to the subway and there's an emergency going on? The waters are rising from flood Hurricane Sandy, and all of a sudden the New York City Transit says, you know what? Subway tokens just went up to 50 bucks each. I think people would be angry, wouldn't you? Well, wouldn't you think that if you were to come hundreds of miles to the temple to do your service to God, that the people say, your money's not good here. We only accept the token or the half shekel. Well, let me have one. Okay, it'll cost you hmm, $500. I would think right there you would have the, the ire of many people rise up. But for some reason, when you have those in charge approving it, allowing you to stay in the temple grounds, allowing you to be right there, that means that they have the approval of the people in charge, of the high priests, of those in charge of the temple. And so this went into corruption. It was taxing the poor. No more could you actually say that the poor will pay no more and the rich will pay no less. It's just everyone pays more if you're not from town or if you did not happen to have the right money. Now, secondly, the corruption came in this way. They required sacrifices that were to be offered. You couldn't just bring any type of sacrifice. It wasn't like you were Cain and said, I have the best vegetables in town. Well, of course, the scriptures are clear on what type of sacrifice was to be given. So let me read to you from Leviticus what type of sacrifices they had to give. Leviticus chapter 14, 19 reads this. The priest shall offer sin offering and to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering, and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. But if he is poor and cannot afford so much, then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be saved, to make atonement for him, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, and for a grain offering and a log of oil, also two turtle doves or two pigeon doves, whichever he can afford, whichever he can afford. For the one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. So even the poor is able to bring the appropriate offerings. However, if you're traveling from out of town and you cannot bring these type of animals with you, well, don't worry. They'll provide them right there at the temple at a small surcharge. Now, shall we say, a very large surcharge. And so what we have here is opportunity, and I'm going to call them mercenaries. Mercenaries. People who are hired to fight. And, of course, that's what a mercenary is. But people that are hired 
to bring in at a profit the things that God requires. We see this in the church today everywhere. It's enough to make the Christian hang their head and mourn over this. But in this economy, and I call this the economy, because under the Mosaic Covenant, clearly specified in the first five books of the Bible, we have been given very clear instructions how they were to operate, and this should not be a burden to them. It was given, the poor was given uh, the ability to please God by coming into his temple with the appropriate sacrifices to be in the presence of God. And they sought to be in his presence. So, this image that we have of trying to be in the presence of God by God saying, these are the requirements. I will have a tabernacle among you. I will have a temple among you. And these are the things that you will do in order to be accepted in my sight and in my presence. Well, with that, Christ went and cleansed the, the, the temple of these uh, profit makers, of these people doing business and doing trade instead of making the house of God a house of prayer. So, this was a shadow, of course, that is, let me word it this way, the Mosaic Covenant is a shadow of the Everlasting Covenant. Now, some people present that idea this way. The Mosaic Covenant grew and expanded into an everlasting covenant. I don't see it that way. But neither do I say the Mosaic Covenant is completely separated and shut off, and it's only a shadow, and then we have an everlasting covenant that this is a shadow of, and this is now just nothing. Because you see, the Mosaic Covenant had real things that actually brought the everlasting covenant into being. Let me put it this way. When Paul was defending the doctrines of grace in the book of Romans, he, he asked a question that he assumed would be asked, and he said, well, if it's all by grace, what profit, or, you know, and, and if, if, if Jews and Gentiles are altogether found guilty before God, what profit is there to be a Jew? And he gave two reasons. One reason is this. It's very much profitable to be a Jew because, number one, Christ came by that lineage. And so you see that the Mosaic Covenant, even though it is the shadow of the everlasting covenant, brought in God's providence to bring about the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant was achieved by this shadow, brought into being by it. And number two, the Jews were stewards of the oracles of God. And so it's more than a shadow, but it is still a shadow. And so I, I'm going I'm to say it this way. There was a genuine presence of God in the tabernacle and in the temple. But those things are gone. And there is a shadow to teach us that the true presence of God is <laughs> taught to us by the epistles and by the gospels that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Also, that Jesus Christ was also that temple. Did not he say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up? You see, the very idea that God dwells among us. What does the Lord's name even mean? Emmanuel, God with us. The dwelling of God with us 
Jesus Christ is that temple. But he is the cornerstone of a temple that we will be built on him. And so it goes into the idea that he comes in to cleanse the temple. And what does he say? This should be a house of prayer. So do we just stop and not think about that? Does not the shadow teach us that we should be houses of prayer instead of houses of merchandise and trade and all the things that should not be there? Should not we pray that Christ comes and cleanse our temples? Driving out that type of mercenary spirit within us? We are no better than those people. Many times we look into the mirror, we we like to think that we're not like those bad people, but are we not like them? I'd say we are. And so with that in mind, let's go to some practical applications. <clears throat> the first one I have is a question for you to answer to yourself. Who built the temple of God? It sounds like a trick question. And you may say to yourself, well, which temple are you talking about? Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, or you know, the tabernacle, you know, in other words, you know, the presence of God. Well, let me just put it this way. I have an example of one being built, and it was the one built by Solomon. So let's kind of take a look at that particular temple and answer the question, who built the temple of God? And then see if there's anything to learn from that, from Christ, from that perspective. If you recall, David was a man described as a man after God's own heart. And I believe that David wanted to build that temple, but God would not let him build that temple. Now, if I asked the question why, some of you would know the answer. I, I can see it in your faces. I know the, ask me. <laughs> I know the answer, okay? And the idea there is that David wanted to build him, but the Lord said, you're a man of war. You're a bloody man. You're a man of war. But I'm going to let your son build it, now, do you see the phrase, the son of David will build the temple? Now, do any of you have any idea where I'm going with this? Do you see that the son of David, Solomon, and his prayer was, you know, well, the Lord said, I'll give you anything you want. And what did Solomon say? Give me wisdom. And so David, when people knew about David, they say, oh, yeah. Saul killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And the world feared the military might and the ability and, and the prowess of David. But what do you think they thought of when they thought of Solomon? Famous for his wisdom. The beauty of the temple he built and the wisdom that he had. When any of the people in this world think about the Lord Jesus Christ, they think about God and they think about his people. Some don't think very much about them. But I'm telling you that everyone does. My son has mentioned to me many times, you know, you know, two or three times, no one ever swears by Apollo. No one ever, you know, uses bad language by Zeus or anything like that. Bad language usually involves the name of our God, the name of the true God. Speaking vainly, speaking blasphemously, they always use the real God's name in that sin, in that horrible thing. But the world also really knows that the true God is Christ and that his people are the true people. And if you were to say, who's the wisest one? Even the ungodly has Christ rising up in their back of their minds and even his people. 
And so when Solomon built this temple, and boy, there's a lot of scripture describing it. And if you want some nice reading, find the document written by John Bunyan called The Spiritualization of the Temple of Solomon. I read it years and years ago when I was younger. I can't find a copy of it, but I, I'm not sure if I put my mind to it, I'd find it. But it's a beautifully written piece of, uh, you know, just a thesis size. But when it comes to when this temple was dedicated, the, the sixth chapter of Second Chronicles gives a tremendous prayer given by Solomon at the dedication of this temple. I pray one day God gives me the wisdom to preach from that chapter. It is a beautiful prayer, wonderful prayer. I'm going to give you one verse from that prayer. It says this, But God will indeed dwell with man. You know, this is a question. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much more less this house that I have built. And so even Solomon knew that building a temple where there would be a presence of God on this earth, even that stone building could not contain him. And so I want you to consider this. The real son of David, not Solomon, but Christ, as he is commissioned to build the temple of God, his church, will we contain God? Well, I'll say this. How can we contain God, the Almighty? But I'll say this also. That holy God dwelt within our Christ. The fullness of the Godhead in Christ. And we are his people. We are built on that stone mm -hmm. and we have God indwelling us and when John when, when our Lord went into those went into the temple those two times and purged it out mercenaries sellers people that would oppress God's real people and profane the house this needs to be a house of prayer do you think he not even now goes through his temple and purges it by the Spirit of Christ and says to us, this needs to be a house of prayer. This needs to be the place where people cry out to God. So, this is one way to look at this. I have another application, and it's this. The dwelling place of God will be a house of prayer. The first one, who built the house of God? The answer is Christ. The second application. The dwelling place of God will be a house of prayer. In these two separate occasions in which the Lord cleansed the temple, we see a slight difference between the two. They're very similar in many ways. But we can see that the first one was right after the marriage at Cana. And it had to do with him saying, my father's house shall not be made a house of trade. Now, he's quoting the same scripture. And I'm not going to impose the idea that Christ said something different than the other one. Because he's still quoting the same scripture. But I find it fascinating that the writers of the Gospels word it this way. In the first cleansing, Christ is said to say, My father's house shall be a house of trade. But in the week before the crucifixion, he comes and he says, quoting the scripture, 
my house shall be a house of prayer. Now, he also said in the first one, it shall not be a house of trade, but a house of prayer. But in the second one, he comes in basically and says, it shall be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. And the emphasis is obvious. The emphasis is there. Christ comes in to make it a house of prayer, and he drives out the wickedness of these people. But there's a slight difference. One is that he has not established a ministry in the temple yet. No one was there anticipating him to teach. No children were there to cry out, Hosanna, son of David. The blind and the lame were not there to be healed. Only those there making money off of God's people. And he purged them and drove them out. But when we see the second purging, it is a different situation. Christ has those who has an ear for what he says. There are those waiting for the gospel. The first time is like the, the law coming through. The second time is like the gospel coming through. One prepared for the other, just like the gospel. Just like the gospel. Now, the first time he went through, it says that he took a cord, you know, cords, bound them together in a whip, and he, and he, and he kind of, you know, thrashed on things. Now, he didn't say he beat on the people. He may have, I don't know. But I have a suspicion he probably beat on the animals to get them out. I don't know if he beat on the people or not. And I have no idea what this whip looked like. But I'm just going to use my imagination. Now, I'm careful not to put words into the scriptures. And I'm also cautious about telling you what I think is right and what I think is wrong. But I'm going to imagine, what would you think if he had bound ten cords together and used it to beat these people out? Ten cords, something like this. You shall not profane the name of God. There's only one God. You shall have one God and him only. You'll not have any images of God around here. You'll not take his name in vain. You'll keep his Sabbath holy. You will love each other. These cords bound together, driving on the heart of a man, is how the gospel works. He prepares the temple by driving them out with the pureness of truth, the gospel being prepped by the law of God. Now, the law of God is something very, very precious and very, very special. And like I said, the Mosaic Covenant is different than the Everlasting Covenant. And everything under the Mosaic Covenant cannot save a soul. Everything under the Everlasting Covenant can. But I'll tell you what, the shadows that are there bring about the true covenant. The beauty of the law of God is the beauty of his nature, the beauty of who he is. And if you look, look at the Sermon on the Mount, almost every commandment is mentioned with the exception of the first four. But those are alluded to many places, many, many places. The law says you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you even look, the law says this, but I say, even that is true with every aspect of the law. You could be a non-lawbreaker in the Old Testament covenant, if you had within your heart, I hate that guy, but you didn't murder him, you wouldn't have to bring a sacrifice. 
But that's not the way it is in the everlasting covenant. Because God sees the heart. He walks into the temple where your soul is. Now, I'm not going to be bold enough to say that a man has a holy of holies. I'd rather prefer it as a ugly of uglies or the evil of evils. But I'll put it this way. The presence of God is represented in the temple where we have the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where within that Ark is the law of God. You know what that, you know, that looks to me? Like that is the very heart of God. And from the mercy seat, he speaks from his heart the pure justice and righteousness of God. Now, we are made in the image of God, and within us there is a secret place also, a secret place that contains pride and selfishness and we speak from that from our own ark of evil and today's gospel sounds like this will you not ask Jesus into your heart when we should be considering will God ask you into his heart because if you do you'll see that there are limits around Mount Sinai there is a burning bush that says take your shoes off you cannot enter into the heart of God Unless you have a Christ, a Messiah to die for your sin. And so why should God want to go into your heart unless he has made a way for you to go into his? And so when he purges the temple, he comes in and he is going to remove your ugly commandments and replace them with his own. Because those commandments that were written on stone by the finger of God shall be written on your heart with his own finger and your heart shall be changed. He comes into a life of a sinner to change him and that temple should be a house of prayer because when you walk with Christ daily, then you walk by talking to God on a daily basis. This is what we can learn if we, if we look at it from this direction. Now, I want you to consider those differences in the second one. When, when Christ came in, there were now people listening to him. He taught daily in the temple, and they came to him. And when he drove out the sellers, and he drove out those that profited, from selling the sacrifices. Those that heard him, the humble, the poor, the weak, and the disabled, they were the ones that he was defending. They're the ones that came, that listened. And because they listened, because children, and it says, infants and sucklings cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, the leaders became indignant. But I want you to consider this. Because he came through the temple the first time, like the law, pushing out the sin, the second time, there were babes. There, were, there was people living, listening. It says that they, they heard every, they hung on every word. This is how the gospel is received by the work of the Holy Spirit in the temple of God, in the temples of, of our bodies. We hear the gospel first with the harshness of the law, and then we hear the gospel that says, take my yoke upon you. 
I am here to save you from the power of sin. And you can walk with God, walk with Christ, live in his presence. And that's what taking on Christ is all about. And that is what our lives as Christians should be like. Holding on to the atoning work of Christ, but then asking, Oh Lord, will you walk with me? Will you be with me? Just imagine yourself being in a conversation with friends and you're talking to this friend and a friend is standing here. And then all of a sudden you say, would you mind leaving? I want to say something to my friend here. Just, just kind of back away so you can't hear. And then after a while, you say, okay, you can come back. You know, what was that about? Well, if I, if I wanted to tell you, I, I, I would let you stay. But we treat the Holy Spirit like that all the time. We are involved many times. We fall into the habits of this world. And we would say, Holy Spirit, would you just kind of back off for a little while? I have, I have, I have some things I want to say to my worldly friends. I have some things to do with this world. No. We need to be that listening to Christ as he comes and says, let's purge this temple. Drive out the mercenary spirits. We need to push them out with the law of God. We need to respect the righteousness and justice. Become people that know how to discern what's right and wrong. You really do. I've said it times in the past. Christians should be experts in right and wrong. And somehow we've failed. We can't figure out what's right and wrong unless it's written down in black and white. It says right here, don't do that. You don't do that. So we don't. We don't do that. We don't know why. Well, maybe we should know why. Because if we knew why, we could apply that to every situation that involves anything involving that. You see, we need that wisdom. We need the wisdom of Solomon. So, let's go into the conclusion. Let me read to you from uh, the epistle, one of the epistles of Paul from Ephesians chapter 2 concerning the dwelling place of God. Ephesians 2.18, we read this. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now he's talking, you know, from a Jewish point of view, talking to Gentiles. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together in a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And so with that, we need to remember this. The temple cleansing is like a shadow showing Christ driving our sin out of a place where he intends to dwell, where God intends to dwell. And that place is you. That place is your heart. Now, be cautious about this. There is a modern gospel that says, all you got to do is invite Jesus into your heart. Well, you know, there's a time and a place to talk like that, and, and those words can be appropriate at times if it's, prep, if it's prepared properly. But just remember that the heart of man is a sinful place. Don't, don't, don't bid the Lord to come where he's going to come, and he will just rip you apart, <laughs> you know, because the Lord is holy. The Lord is holy. And so work with the law of God so that the law of God can do its work in you. And also embrace the gospel of Christ so that the knowledge of Christ can do its work. Mm 
Be engaged in the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God that you may dwell in Christ and Christ can dwell in you. So I encourage you now, seek the presence of the Lord. Seek it out in your daily life. It'll help you grow as a Christian. You'll become more mature. You'll gain assurance. You'll get to know what right and wrong is. And then you'll get to love what is right. Because Christ has saved you from the power of sin and has justified you, giving you that power to do so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we come now in the name of our Christ. Work within us. May Christ and the Spirit of the Holy, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, now work within us, driving out the sin. We ask that the knowledge that we have of our God who desires to dwell within us, that we might be the temple of the living God. O oh Lord, we pray, because of the justifying work of the atoning work of Christ, we ask, help us, sanctify us, enable us to daily repent, to repent of the sin that keeps you close to us, that we might walk with you by faith every day until you come back. So, Father, dwell with us. Dwell with us, we ask, and we pray this in our Lord's name, that we might be people of prayer, always there, always willing to have your face shine upon us. Mm -hmm. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.